0: Welcome to The Vaccination Station. My name is Dave, and today I am interviewing Moshe Rhodes. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. Let's start by getting to know you. Can you tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting?
1: We'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but I'm an astrobiologist by trade, actually. Um, astrobiology being anything to do with life and space. You'd be amazed how many times people ask me to tell them their future after they, I tell them I'm an astrobiologist. And as a hobby, well, I used to play a lot of Ultimate Frisbee and the pandemic and me getting a little bit older, I kind of started transitioning into disc golf. So we play a lot of disc golf these days, just played in a tournament uh, this past weekend, which was lots of fun. What's else? I got two little boys under the, well, one's three and one's eight months.
0: That's fantastic. I have a friend in Texas who plays disc golf, and it was, it was something I'd, I'd never even heard of before until I, I went to Texas and, and um, got to know him. And it's it's pretty fascinating. I, I still don't understand how people can be so accurate, though, uh, with their throws. It's it's just amazing to see some of the videos he puts up.
1: Yeah, I had, I had a goal of be able to throw a, a desk about, 400 feet by 40. I was about 30 feet short.
0: So Moshe, where did you study and what are your qualifications? So I actually,
1: so I have a non-traditional background. I did my PhD in the department of geoscience at Penn State. So I come from that kind of background, but if you had to say what my doctorate is in, it's best described as environmental microbiology. So that's what I... Started, and then I did a postdoc in the human microbiome. So just kind of looking at humans as any other environment. so those those are my I guess those are my qualifications, and those are the kind of areas of microbiology that I specialize in.
0: So you also said you're an astrobiologist. What can you tell us about that field, considering that one of the biggest goals of current science is to discover life outside our planet? Well,
1: so far we haven't. um, But how I tie in everything together. So my dissertation was on life in the Dead Sea. Um, So my specialty in particular is Life in hypersaline or high salt environments like the Dead Sea, the Great Salt Lake. I'm sure Australia has plenty. I just don't know them off the top of my head. And the idea to connection to astrobiology is life needs water. So we got to look for places in the solar system and beyond where there's liquid water. And in particular, places like Mars, we know Mars used to have water. The oceans disappear. As that water disappears, the water going to get, the remaining water is going to be saltier and saltier. So the last water, liquid water on Mars, or when you see liquid water sometimes flowing on Mars, it's gonna be hypersaline. So we look at bacteria, microorganisms that live in high salt environments on Earth to get an idea of what to look for on places like Mars and other planets
0: that's really fascinating i live about 20 minutes from some quite broad uh, salt plains here in in South australia well they're not, they're not really salt plains i guess they're sort of man-made salt lakes that are used for uh, industrial um salt generation um and it just amazes me that anything could could live in that environment i mean Searching for life in the Dead Sea already sounds like a, a an oxymoron. Um, but you you say what microbes can can survive in in those conditions?
1: Uh, absolutely, there are microbes that live at the saturation point of sodium chloride, so fully saturated water. There are microbes that survive for eons trapped within salt crystals and have been brought back to life. Um, and you have to understand. What's extreme is always a matter of perspective. To a lot of life on our planet, oxygen is extreme. So what we think of as normal would actually actually cause one of the greatest mass extinctions in Earth's history.
0: Many people, myself included, would struggle with the idea of a microbe being trapped in in salt and then coming back to life under the right conditions, because that seems to defy our basic understanding of what life is and and how it operates can you sort of explain that in layman's terms sort of explain what exactly is occurring there and does is this does this hinge upon maybe a slightly elastic definition of life or are they simply alive in a different way to us um what's the deal there
1: they're essentially in a self-preservation mode There and it's highly controversial just how long a microorganism stay and exist in that mode. So they're they're never dying. It's not like they're coming back to life. They're just entering a mode of self uh, preservation and where they're just barely chugging along. And they, you know, there have been claims up to a hundred million years, which are not all that well supported but claims in the low millions of years i would say are pretty well supported actually
0: that is absolutely crazy it actually reminds me of of tardigrades which are supposedly <laughs> hypothetically indestructible um i suppose once you get so small you reach a point where there's not much that can actually that can actually harm you because um, how can it actually reach you or or, or damage you? But they, tardigrades are bizarre. They just sort of seem to exist in this sort of um, almost like an alternate universe once you're down to that scale, isn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. And so what one of the key things that tardigrades do to keep themselves alive is they get rid of a lot of their water. So they kind of dehydrate themselves and stay preserved in that dehydrated state for maybe hundreds of years. But we're talking, you know, Halophilic—that's salt-loving bacteria—and archaea that can stay in that kind of state for much, much longer. How long? We don't really know.
0: Does that mean there's a, a possibility, as we excavate and and investigate our planet further, we could be inadvertently releasing microbes that have not actually encountered our current era before that that we that we haven't actually interacted with before?
1: I mean, that happens all the time. Uh, permafrost um, melting, salt deposits getting, uh, I'm blanking the word, but dissolved um, where there's constantly reservoirs or microbes that are getting re-exposed after extended period times well before human civilization. But none of these really be pathogenic to humans, so it's not like we're going to go ahead and unleash a new pandemic from this microbe that's been trapped in salt or
0: trapped in ice for 100,000 years. That, that's very reassuring. <laughs> so how did you first become interested in science as a career? Um, I've always saw myself as progressing
1: to a path in science. I was one of those kids who wanted to be an astronaut didn't go that way for me. I did I have applied to be an astronaut twice. NASA didn't want me, but then it kind of kinda came full circle. I had zero intentions of studying astrobiology. And I woke up one day in grad school and realized that I was an astrobiologist and I kind of fulfilled that lifetime goal of studying something relating to space.
0: What advice would you give to someone who is considering a career in science?
1: I think a lot of people when they're considering pure science can intimidate or think, I need to go to grad school, I need to go get my PhD. And I would say only go that path if you're 100% sure that's the way you wanna do. There are many other ways of contributing to science many other paths um, into scientific fields that, and that don't involve that much schooling and are really essential in today's world, from science advocacy to science communication. I guess kind of think outside the box in terms of where you want your career to go.
0: That's a very refreshing, and I guess for a lot of people reassuring response because there has of course been for many generations the idea that science is a an elite field that requires a super high level of ability uh, and qualification to to enter and to succeed in but i suppose now and and i guess this is partly due to the era of the internet and social media there are other forms of science like science communication or other roles within the broader science umbrella that are now more accessible to people who understand concepts even if they don't have a specific professional qualification in them and because these people are very good at communicating ideas as long as they understand the ideas properly they can actually use their ability to become a good science communicator without being a scientist per se would, you, would is that fair to say
1: yeah i mean i think there's a very different skills being able to communicate ideas and being able to come up with novel ideas hypotheses experiments um and many people are not good at both
0: so how did you get into science communication yourself
1: so i would say about a decade or so ago nasa with this thought that we're discussing in mind wanting to kind of train more scientists in science communication launched this program called nasa fame lab where they had a competition for young career early career scientists to compete in science communication science outreach and kind of on a whim I entered the competition um I didn't win but I enjoyed myself and I had a wild card from the regionals to the national finals and you know and kind of built off from there
0: how has social media affected the way that you communicate your knowledge and ideas
1: not as much as it should. Honestly, I should have more of a social media presence and <clears throat> should be more fluent with social media than I am. But that's something, again, that doesn't come naturally to me and is not one of the things in my skill sets. And so I don't I don't really do that much with social media. And that has definitely been a detriment in science communication and outreach, including, you know, when I published my book and articles and things like that.
0: Your profile page on the College of Charleston website says that one of your research interests is the human microbiome and its impact on immune function. What does that mean and what are the practical implications for public health? So, as
1: I said, I did my postdoc in Colorado on the human microbiome. And one thing about our microbiome is we've evolved with our microbes. We've evolved to be introduced to certain microbes. We've evolved to, or our our immune system evolved to help be regulated and trained by specific microbes. And so some of the research I was doing was looking at what microbes help modulate our immune system, kind of tamp it down. We have a lot of diseases in our current society that are caused by overactive immune systems, inflammation, inflammatory diseases, and there are some microbes that are in our microbiome that are very good at reducing inflammation within us. And so we were looking at you know, the diversity of microbes that produce anti-inflammatory compounds in our gut. Uh, and then one application of that was to see how the microbiome changes when people are HIV positive and how that alteration of the microbiome might contribute to inflammatory symptoms in people who are suffering from HIV.
0: You've been involved with vaccine advocacy for some years now. What prompted you to become a vaccine advocate?
1: Um. So that story, I had this kernel of an idea for kind of a humorous book, which we'll talk about later, um, which I sat on for probably close to a decade. Didn't do much with it. And then I was listening to National Public Radio in South Carolina, and I heard an interview with this woman, Kim Nelson, who was kind of the leading vaccine advocate for parents in South Carolina, and I was kind of inspired by it. So I reached out to the radio station and got her information and sent her an email, and we ended up meeting up for coffee, and I bounced some ideas off of her, and she was very enthusiastic about my ideas and kind of connected me to a vaccine advocacy network, which is where I found an illustrator and found other people with similar interests, including the woman who put us together. And from there, I started writing some articles, wrote my book, have given testimony at uh, local government hearings on vaccination. Um,
0: Would love to do more, but that's what I've done so far. So leading on from that, you've written a book called Jenny's First Sleepover. What can you tell me about it?
1: So yeah, Jenny's First Sleepover was, again, a kernel of idea I had about a decade ago when I just kind of sat on it. It's one of those books, I call it in a, a darkly humorous adult-themed picture book. So if you've heard of the book uh, Go after to Sleep, um, it's one of those books that look like they're a kids book but it's really geared towards adults and jenny's first sleepover is kind of a dystopian sleepover where jenny's turning seven and she invites ten of her friends and they are none of them are vaccinated and they all bring different vaccine communicable diseases and one by one the girls get the disease and suffer the symptoms and then it has a little bit of information and progresses from there
0: i think most parents would consider that the premise of an 11 girl sleepover pretty dystopian to begin with <laughs> but, uh, but <laughs> i've got two teenagers myself um and yeah two or three kids for a sleepover is is fine i cannot imagine having too many more than that uh but that's well, sounds... grandma grandma was there too um okay. she got she got shingles <laughs> great <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, um if you have a if you have a link to that book I can add it in the uh, in the podcast notes so that people know where to find it in September 2020 you had an article published in the Post and Courier which is a South Carolina newspaper and your article was entitled South Carolina must ban all but legitimate medical exemptions for vaccinations What led you to write that article? What's the current state of vaccine mandate law in South Carolina? And how was the article received?
1: Um, So this is one of life's um, funny coincidences. The day, literally the day that I published my book, I ended up self-publishing. I had an agent, but none of the big publishing houses would touch it. Um, the day I published it, there was a mumps outbreak at my college, College of Charleston. Uh, and I had been in touch with the administration to let them know that I was going to be publishing this book and using my credentials as a microbiology professor. Um, so they had heard of me and I get an email from the administration saying we'd like to get on ahead of this mumps uh outbreak. Would you consider writing an op-ed for the local newspaper? Um, so I said, sure, why not? And uh, they gave me full discretion, essentially, on what I wrote the op-ed on. And I decided, um, inspired. This was, I should say, this was summer two thousand nineteen, um, and I decided, based upon the uh, the Mumsnet outbreak that was happening, to write about all the kind of fake uh, vaccine exemptions that were being provided in my state. So people were claiming religious exemptions or kind of moral exemptions and they were just being handed out kind of willy-nilly. And so I wrote this article kind of uh, going against that and arguing that there's really no major religion that advocates against vaccination, no major denomination of religion that advocates against uh, vaccination. So the only reason that we should be allowing exceptions for vaccination are in our school system, at least, is for legitimate medical reasons. And the article, you know, the article was reasonably well received. I didn't get any hate mail from that one. I did get a couple pieces of of mail in support. uh, So that was always fun to get. Um, But I think Given how politicized vaccination has gotten in the past three three and a half years, anything I would say we've gone backwards in our state, but I'm not a hundred percent sure on that.
0: Do you know what the the current state of uh, of of the law is at the moment in South Carolina regarding vaccine mandates? I mean, I guess they're mandated for for primary and secondary school.
1: I believe. They are oh, so. Again, I, I haven't I haven't looked this up recently. I believe they are mandated, but I think there's still pretty easily accessible um, exemptions. So anybody who really wants an exemption can get one.
0: Of course, yes. the 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 devil's always in the detail. I mean, you can have mandates, but if you have loopholes, then it's it's not too difficult for people to to simply skirt around them. We have um, very robust mandates here in in Australia that are tied not only to school attendance, but also to social security benefits. That is imposed at a federal level, so the state governments can't undermine it or or cancel it out with their own legislation. And that's proved very effective at, at maintaining a high vaccination rate here in Australia. Imagine someone comes to you one day and says they are pro-vax and they want to become a vaccine advocate, but they don't know how to help because they have no medical or scientific qualifications. How would you advise them?
1: So first off, you don't need
0: to have all the facts and all the figures right at your
1: fingertips. I mean, nobody knows everything. I would say me in the scientific community, We have a lot of imposter syndrome, so we always think we don't know as much as we actually do, but nobody can just rattle off or very few people can rattle off all the facts at a moment's notice. And that's why a lot of anti-vaxxers and anti-science personalities love these live debates because you say something wrong and then they have a gotcha moment and they create all these false narratives based on that. And so if you ever find yourself in a conversation where you don't know the facts, just because you don't know them, just because you don't know them right now, isn't going to change what the facts are. So if you ever are not sure, just say, you know, let me look into that and get back to you. And then in a day or so, when you have time to research or reach out to other resources, get back with a articulate, um, well-reasoned response.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that. The The best answer to a question to which you don't know the answer is, I don't know. It's much better than trying to sort of scrounge up something on the fly or quickly look at your phone to Google something and hoping you can get a decent hit in the next 3.5 seconds. And I think that is what separates the truly inquiring mind from the more credulous in that the truly inquiring mind will know that there are limits to knowledge and we'll know the limits of their own knowledge and we'll also know that it's okay not to know stuff occasionally because you know that's that's how we learn we find out things that on an as needed basis most of the time we don't go around looking for huge treasure troves of information that we can stuff into our brains in case we need them at some further date but being able to say I don't know and understanding that that is a perfectly reasonable response is also a sign of intellectual honesty and, and and i believe intellectual maturity it's the people who say i have all the answers for everything that i'm more wary of because that does not sound very very credible to me that that reeks of of an ideological bias somewhere and i have to ask myself you know Are they really a critical thinker or or are they simply someone who's got so deep down the rabbit hole of their own narrative that they think they can outthink everyone else? And you make a good point about debates as well, because, of course, people like to say, oh, so science can't be questioned then? Well, of course it can, but you question science with science and the scientific method. Science isn't determined by debates on the radio, on TV, in public forums. Science is determined in in labs and research institutes by science. And that's why non-scientists asking to debate scientists like RFK Jr, for example, why won't they debate me? Well, firstly, because that's not how science is done. And secondly, even if it was you're not a scientist and you're not the kind of person a scientist would debate in the first place you are you're completely irrelevant so this whole big thing of they won't debate me is a is a massive distraction that anti-vaxxers love to use um because it it convinces me you know, they use it to convince people that oh the scientists are too scared to challenge these dark unpalatable truths that we anti-vaxxers keep hitting them with course, the reality is that the anti-vaxxers are are simply presenting a, a, a false dilemma, and that I think is an important point for for people to understand.
1: I mean, I know personally when I'm teaching classes, I love to teach times when science got it wrong, because to me that that's science in action. You know, when we thought that we found life on Mars, that's that's one of my favorites. You know, that's science correcting itself and People are going to make careers based on debunking bad science. So the whole notion that scientists are going to, you know, try to hide the truth is just completely illogical.
0: I I heard a lot about um, finding remnants of, of or traces of, of evidence of water on Mars, but the. The story about whether or not we'd found life on Mars, uh, my knowledge of that is a bit more murky. Can can you sort of just summarize that for me and for the, for the audience? Let us know what what happened and what the initial conclusions were and then how they were subsequently disproved?
1: Yeah, so that's one of the controversies. I wouldn't say controversies. one of the well-investigated episodes that I like to use in, one, in some of my classes. So I would say in the 1990s, 1990s, there was a Martian meteor found on Earth that looked like it might have some evidence for life on Mars. There are some reasonable ways of concluding that showed microfossils, fossilized bacteria um, that existed at one point on Mars. And there were people who rushed to that judgment. And I think even the president of the U.S. made an announcement about this meteor. But then the scientific community got a hold of the sample and kept on subjecting it to more and more and more tests with more and more sophisticated technology and eventually realized that there's really no compelling evidence that this is biologic. It could all be made by, you know, abiotic processes that make things that kind of look like life. So eventually... That's been completely debunked, but that is the scientific process in action. If you make a grand statement, you better have the facts to support it, and then everybody who can is going to start digging into it to see whether it holds water.
0: That's really interesting. Thank you. And, And while we're on the subject of life outside Earth, I know that a concept that is discussed frequently um, within this context is something called the Fermi Paradox.
1: Mm.
0: Can can you explain to, to the audience what the Fermi Paradox is and why it is so significant in this field?
1: Okay, so Fermi Paradox is based on whether you think life and intelligent life in particular is common. In our galaxy in the universe so the paradox is if you do think that life is common and intelligent life is common and that there are all these extraterrestrial civilizations all over our galaxy well then why haven't we found any of them why don't we seen evidence of them why haven't they contacted us um so you have to answer that question so he, you have to come up with some kind of explanation as to why that might be the case and there's some really interesting theories out there or you have to come to the opposite conclusion that life is not common and we might be alone um so that's kind of the two sides of it and those are the kind of questions that i personally love because either answer to that fermi paradox is kind of profound if there are tons of either there's tons of life elsewhere in the universe and in our solar in our galaxy which you know is one of those stop and think and contemplate your existence moments or we're alone in our galaxy in our universe which is also a pretty significant statement but at this point we have no idea
0: yeah i think was it arthur c clark who said that there are two possibilities, one that we are alone in the universe and the other that we are not alone and both are equally terrifying. I think
1: you're right. I think it was Arthur C. Clarke and I think I didn't do a great job of paraphrasing him. Um, but I'm, well, don't quote me on either but of those.
0: I'm, I'm pretty sure that I mean, I'm a old school sci-fi sci-fi buff, so I was raised on... On Heinlein and, and Arthur C. Clarke and H. G. Wells and and uh, Isaac Asimov, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure that was Clarke. And it's a deceptively profound statement when you start to think about it because mm-hmm. I, he's absolutely right. Yeah. So you mentioned you don't have much of a social media presence, uh, but if people do want to follow your work in in some way, is there anywhere in particular that they should look for you online?
1: Well there is a webpage for the book jenny's first I think it's still live and you could I think you could still get the book on Amazon but I have to check. And actually I should say I am as you're seeing I am the world's worst publicist. <laughs> so I did not do a great job of promoting the book and I came up with the most scientific way of achieving publicity. So when I published a book, I was curious. You know, is this approach of dark humor a valid approach? Will it convince parents who might not get their children vaccinated to actually vaccinate their kids? And so what I did, I went to a public health professor and a couple of journalism professors, and said, "Could we do a study on this?" Uh, and we did. We actually did do that study. We ended up doing a survey-based study where we sent roughly 500 vaccine hesitant parents, either CDC literature on vaccines or a copy of Jenny's first sleepover and ask them a questionnaire before and after. And it's funny, we did that right as COVID started. So we actually first published a paper on vaccine hesitant parents' um, outlook on the COVID vaccine because we were one of the first groups to actually ask questions about that. And then we are actually the paper on Jenny's first sleepover. I, I kept my hands off on that paper because of conflict of interest, but that paper is currently under review and I'm hoping it is actually an effective means because from what I've saw from anecdotal evidence and from the evidence that was shared with me, it was actually an effective approach and accessible, I should say, and effective approach at communicating vaccine information to people who you know, might might be dismissive of other mediums.
0: You are the first author I've met who conducted a scientific study to determine whether or not he should write and publish a book. <laughs> that's that's pretty fascinating. <laughs> Masha, yeah. you've been a, a really great guest. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you,
1: Dave.